Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. As the threat of pandemic flu stalks the globe, some scientists say huge factory farms offer ideal conditions to incubate such dangerous new diseases. You have thousands of animals held in close confinement under conditions that are not sanitary, and therefore you've got a lot of hosts available to exchange a pathogen, which is one of the processes by which viruses and bacteria evolve. Plus, how the Chrysler bankruptcy could pave the way to a greener auto industry. And we'll hear how the clock is running out on one way of telling time. If you think about it, most people under the age of 25 do not wear wristwatch. They use their cell phone. And so arguably, the wristwatch will go the same way as a pocket watch. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young in Washington. President Obama came into office pledging to save jobs and create millions of new green ones. Now he could be doing both by putting the public treasury behind a bankruptcy reorganization of Chrysler Motors. In this historic deal, the company's union employees would trade their pension claims for majority control of stock in the restructured company. Other shares would go to the U.S. and Canadian governments and Chrysler's new partner, Italian carmaker Fiat. It's a partnership that will give Chrysler a chance not only to survive, but to thrive in a global auto industry. Fiat has demonstrated that it can build the clean, fuel-efficient cars that are the future of the industry. And as part of this agreement, Fiat has already agreed to transfer billions of dollars in cutting-edge technology to Chrysler to help them do the same. Fiat's also committed to working with Chrysler to build new fuel-efficient cars and engines right here in America. This is a no-money-down deal for Fiat, but Fiat must keep at least 90% of Chrysler's workforce. The deal could also be a model for how the government might use tax dollars to rescue GM. Dan Neal, automotive writer for the Los Angeles Times, joins us. Uh, Now, Dan, you're in California. That's a state that's on track to limit global warming gases from cars, and uh, other states are set to follow suit. Now, how is that key to the Chrysler Fiat business plan? Well, that requirement would raise the emission standards for autos in California up to 30 or 40 percent by 2016, which is a dramatic uh, increase in efficiency for automobiles. Uh, In that case, yes, Chrysler would be far better positioned, assuming it can survive long enough to rebadge and otherwise re-engineer these fiat platforms that are intended to remodel the showrooms of Chrysler. Next up is General Motors, uh, GM. Um, They've got another uh, few weeks to work out a deal, but it looks like at the end of the day that that company will be 30% owned by the union. How green will GM become? Well, a lot depends on, I think, the California ruling will make a big difference in product planning going forward. If they want to stay in business, they'll have to meet these higher standards, obviously, so there'll be at least that green. One of the ironies of this whole process 
is that they're having to sell off some of the very things that they're going to need to survive. For example, they're going to get rid of Opal. Well, Opal makes really great small cars with really great efficient engines. They're going to have to get rid of Saab. They're going to get rid of Saturn. Saturn really helped GM's cafe bottom line. And then, of course, there's the Volt, which is a uh, range-extended battery electric hybrid that uh, GMs has been building and, you know, sort of trumpeting for uh, a couple of years now. The Volt it will be a money loser for quite a while after it comes to market. They want to sell it for 40000 probably cost them 80000 to build. So that's also not a source of profitability in the short term. It's going to be very, very difficult for GM to become greener and at the same time become, as they say, a viable business entity. You say that GM is going to lose money on the Volt. Well, Toyota, of course, lost a lot of money on the Prius. It cost them about sixty or 80000 bucks to make the first Priuses, and they were selling it in the 30s. They were losing a lot of money. Right. What is it that uh, the federal government needs to be prepared to do if it's going to see GM and Chrysler and perhaps even have to help Ford through this transition to greener vehicles? Well, the big thing they could do is to stabilize the price of gasoline. That would be a big help. The next thing that they could do is they could help with battery technology, which, in fact, the Obama administration has done. They've put over $2 billion into advanced battery technology for automobiles. The third thing they they could do, they have done, is they are finally offering some clarity on carbon emissions from automobiles. You know, one of the things that was so frustrating watching this uh, process in the past decade is that the car companies were fighting against these regulations, but they really suffered from the uncertainty. So to what extent do the car companies make this mess themselves? I mean, it's busy fighting these regulations to green up their business, which would have given them a clear price signal and given them a clear path. Ah, well, the ultimate villain in all of this is the quarterly profit report. Japanese companies take a much longer view of things. The Prius was a long-term investment. Same deal with Honda. Honda invested in hybrid technology long before it was cool, long before it was profitable. This constant near-term thinking and planning uh, led General Motors, for example, in 2006 to double down on uh, SUVs and big truck design. And that left them, when the crisis came, disadvantaged because when people stopped buying these trucks and SUVs in great numbers, their sales fell through the floor. What are the odds that uh, GM and Chrysler can catch up with Honda and Toyota and their quality? The world will have to turn over on its axis before that happens. It's going to be a very big challenge. Now, when we're talking about vastly smaller, vastly leaner, vastly more agile companies, uh, General Motors, Chrysler, Ford, yeah, that'll, that, there's no reason. There are actually more smart people in Detroit than there are in the car business in Tokyo. It is a mistake to think that American car makers are somehow inherently inferior. They're not. They have been hamstrung by a system and a corporate culture. This bankruptcy, this purifying fire that these companies may be going through now, I think will, will unleash a great deal of innovation, and they will rise again. But it will be very challenging in the short term. So perhaps in the future you'll be buying, what will we call it, a Feisler or a Creat? I like those. Those are You better trademark those. Those are good. Dan Neal is an automotive columnist for the Los Angeles Times. Dan, thanks so much. Okay, you're welcome, Steve. Well, the auto industry is just one area where President Obama has tried to steer energy, the environment, and the economy together during his first 100 days in office. 
To get an idea of what's happened in those 100 days, consider just one day, Monday, April 27th. On that day, the Environmental Protection Agency indicated it will toughen rules on pollution from power plants. The Interior Department reversed rules that let mountaintop removal coal mines dump waste near streams. And Obama's Secretary of State said the U.S. was ready to lead the way to a global warming agreement. All in just one day, and a Monday at that. This president, who stressed the fierce urgency of now on the campaign trail, has wasted no time. His first major legislative achievement, the economic stimulus package, put tens of billions of dollars toward clean energy. Obama told workers at an Iowa wind turbine facility that he's made more progress in three months than the country has seen in three decades. We're beginning to break the bonds, the grip that fossil fuels has on us. We're beginning to create a new clean energy economy and the millions of jobs that will flow from it. President Obama assembled an environmental team that has won high praise from the scientific community. And Team Obama has overturned Bush-era decisions on energy, endangered species, and land management. President Obama's Interior Secretary, Ken Salazar, put the Republican plan for offshore drilling on hold and revoked some controversial drilling permits. We revisited the decision to offer areas in Utah near Arches and Canyonlands National Parks for oil and gas drilling. And I'm proud of that decision. But despite this early burst of activity, there are still doubts about whether the course the administration is setting will meet the tremendous challenges. I sat down with Nancy Sutley to talk about that. As chair of the White House Council on Environmental Quality, she's the president's top environmental policy advisor. Sutley says she's pleased with the administration's early progress. We got off to a pretty fast start, uh, starting really with the president's first week uh, when he asked EPA and the Department of Transportation to to go back and look at whether our uh, automobile efficiency standards were good enough, but also things like energizing the EPA by increasing its funding to its largest budget in its history to put EPA back to work to protecting the American people's. And the really historic levels of investment in clean energy and growing the green economy and creating green jobs, that's that's part of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. It really is the largest investment in clean energy the United States has ever made. So I I would feel safe in saying that uh, this administration has gotten off to the fastest uh, and uh, most comprehensive start on dealing with the really important issues related to energy, climate change, and the environment that any administration has. Uh, Let's talk about the the clean energy investment and the, the green jobs creation. Is it mostly the potential for green jobs creation or Is the uh, stimulus money actually getting out quickly enough where you have concrete examples you can point to? Here are green jobs. Well, I think there's a broad spectrum of things that come under green jobs, but the American uh, Recovery and Reinvestment Act really does have money going out the door quickly to fund some programs that we know work, things like low-income weatherization, things like investing in uh, research and development for things like smart grid that's already going out the door. Those, uh, those investments are green jobs. On climate change, I've got to say, here we are, 100 days, and, and you haven't solved global warming yet. Well, uh, yeah, give us give us a few more days, but uh, you know, it's it's. I think I think we've made a lot of progress. The Recovery Act kind of gives us a good template to work from, and those funds, you know, really is to grow this sector of the economy, but also to really address the peril that global warming is putting our our planet into. Uh, the U.S. was sort of 
missing in action for the last eight years. So things like the president showing leadership at the international level, the State Department uh, is hosting this major economies forum as a way to get the largest economies in the world, who also happen to be the largest greenhouse gas emitters, talking to each other in anticipation uh, of Copenhagen. Uh, So I think there's been a lot going on 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 climate change. Anything that we're going to do on climate change is going to involve big changes to our, our energy economy. And it's going to require a lot of public support to do that because people get nervous when you start making those big changes. Do you think that public support is there? Well, I think the American people are hopeful and optimistic about the ability to uh, run our economy more sustainably, to create millions of jobs that can't be exported overseas. We are running the risk of falling behind on things like uh, manufacturing uh, renewable energy products. And so I think there's a sense of, of hopefulness that this new green economy and that this investment in clean energy uh, will produce real benefits for, for the American economy. And I think people understand that. That's Nancy Sutley, chair of the White House Council on Environmental Quality. You can hear the entire interview at our website, LOE.org. Let's see, a warming planet, two wars, and a weak economy. This president has his hands full. And now we add to that list the threat of pandemic flu. Just ahead, we explore the possible links between the flu virus and factory farming. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. World health authorities are on alert, tracking the new flu, now officially called the H1N1 2009 flu. Not as catchy a name as swine flu, maybe, but more accurate, since scientists are still working to better understand the connection between the virus and pigs. While health officials are trying to check the virus's spread, other researchers are working to find its origin. And some of them suspect large-scale factory farms may have played a role. Ellen Silbergelt teaches environmental health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, where she studied the connections between factory farms and disease. Professor Silbergeld says these intensive industrial-scale livestock operations are fertile ground for viruses to mutate. The H1N1 2009 virus has a mix of genetic material linked to pigs, birds, and humans. And Professor Silbergeld says that's allowed it to take on its troubling characteristics. The aspects of this strain that are troubling to us are, number one, that it has clearly moved from non-human into human hosts. Number two, that it appears to readily infect one human from another human, so it's transmissible among us. You don't have to have contact with pigs or birds to get this virus. And third, that it is quite virulent. That is, it causes serious illness. Now, uh, why do we suspect pigs had some role here? And and what is it that uh, is special about pigs that makes them a possible uh, conduit for a flu that humans can get? The reason why this is notable is, of course, that pigs are very close to humans in terms of the immune system. And so an influenza virus that has been able to infect pigs is in some way closer to being conditioned to infecting us. 
Why do you suspect these large-scale farms? What is it about this particular uh, method of, of farming that you think makes it easier for viruses to change and to, and to jump from species to species? Well, this, of course, is not strictly limited to influenza viruses, but is based on observations by us and others in studying bacteria as well as viruses. Uh, these operations contain elements that really are conducive to raising concerns for public health. You have thousands of animals, in the case of pigs, usually between two and 6,000 animals, held in close confinement under conditions that are not sanitary. That is, frankly, they're housed with their wastes. And therefore, you've got a lot of hosts available to exchange a pathogen, which is one of the processes by which viruses and bacteria evolve and acquire mutations. And then the way in which these operations are run, and I want to stress this is a worldwide issue. It is not peculiar or restricted to Mexico. Uh, you have situations that are not biosecure and also large amounts of waste that are not well-regulated in terms of their management or disposal. In terms of biosecurity, it's generally not recognized that these operations have to be highly ventilated. When you put two to 6,000 animals inside a building, you have to have very high rates of ventilation or the animals will die of heat stress. So several researchers have in fact reported that in the environs of these large operations, you can detect pathogens in the outflow air from these exhaust fans. People have also isolated influenza virus from the legs uh, and feet of flies in the vicinity of these operations. And this was noted in some outbreaks of avian influenzas, for example, in Japan. So the lack of biosecurity, the very dense populations, the conditions that are conducive to viral evolution and mutation, and the lack of control over disposal of waste from these animals, which also contain pathogens, are really the elements that have given rise to concern for us and many others, as to uh, the public health implications of this manner of, of food animal production. So despite their efforts to keep it secure, uh, you, you can't stop the flow of air, you can't stop insects. Well, the issue is most of the biosecurity practices that have been developed by the industry, most of them have been to protect the animals from a person bringing in a disease that could be dangerous to the health of the animals. In terms of what we call biocontainment, that is preventing something that might be in the house from coming out, there's very, very imperfect and limited protection. Is there evidence that uh, the people who work at these type farms are more susceptible to catching diseases uh, from the animals and able to spread disease to other people? Uh, there's considerable evidence that workers in these uh, operations, farmers and farm workers, are in fact at greater risk of exposure. Uh, studies conducted in Iowa and other places have demonstrated that workers in swine CAFOs have a high rate of infection by swine influenzas. In the same way, we and others have reported that workers in poultry houses have a high rate of being infected by poultry-borne pathogens. Now, and here's one of the tricky things. They may not be sick. I'm sure you've heard of typhoid Mary. And the really worrying thing in public health is what we call the asymptomatic carrier. 
That is a person who's become infected by a pathogen but does not get sick. So uh, the the people then become sort of the, the bridge for the virus to, to get out of the, the farm and out into the broader human population. They are one bridge. But I, I do want to emphasize these environmental pathways of dispersion through air and waste that may be even more important. And what would be your recommendations? How could uh, this type of farming be made uh, less likely to produce dangerous diseases? I think in light of this event, there are some things we should do in the short term. First and foremost, we need to recognize the critical role of industrial food animal production in the emergence of new diseases. And we need to direct much more oversight and monitoring as to what's going on in terms of what's happening in the animals and also in people who are really at the front line, who are the workers and the farmers and the nearby communities. These groups really aren't part of our monitoring and surveillance program at the same time. Second, I think we need to immediately institute much better oversight over the management of waste. Influenzas can survive in waste for months, and yet there are no requirements for either testing or appropriate management. And this has got to be a very important switch point in this whole process, globally speaking. Ellen Silbergeld is professor of environmental health at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. As if the young Obama administration didn't have enough to contend with, it also inherited the problems of New Orleans and Louisiana in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. Much of the Gulf region still faces dire threats from flooding should another storm strike. Shortly after Katrina, Ivor von Heerden, the deputy director of the Louisiana State University Hurricane Center, was among those who urged authorities to rethink the levee system. He suggested that protected areas should be scaled back, but also made stronger where they protect core areas, including downtown New Orleans. Right now, if you look at coastal Louisiana and and imagine you spread your fingers of your hand in front of you, our levee systems kind of run along the outside of your fingers. And between each finger, you have a V, and that's basically a funnel that the surge can funnel up when we get a big storm. So really what we need to do in terms of that finger is to, is to cut it off at the knuckles and have one line of levees. Uh, it's much shorter in the long run, but it runs across the central part of the coastal zone. Those areas that are outside, you have to compensate the people and give them locations inside the protected system. How many people right now live outside the protected uh, system you're talking about? It probably amounts to maybe 100,000 at the most. The bottom line in all of this is, as you plan, is it has to be a case of not what's good for me, but what's good for the most folk, what's good for everybody, what makes the best sense for the overall population in coastal Louisiana.
At the time, Ivor von Heerden's ideas were viewed with a lot of skepticism. But recently, the National Academy of Sciences reviewed thousands of pages of recommendations and records compiled by a task force led by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and came to conclusions surprisingly similar to those of von Heerden. The Interagency Task Force, known by its acronym IPET, also found fault with some of the Army Corps' engineering practices. University of North Carolina professor David Moreau was part of the National Academy Review. The report is uh, remarkably candid in several places, particularly candid in terms of its assessment of the failure along the 17th Street Canal, which led to the flooding of a major portion of the central city. So there's nothing being uh, papered over there. Whether it's this report or the general information about what happened during Katrina, there will be a very significant change in the design of protective facilities. There will be a substantial change in how the risk is communicated. The committee recommended that, in fact, the IPET uh, staff actually hire a firm that is specializes in in communicating with the public to take the findings and uh, translate those into common everyday language. People were told that the system was built to a 100-year flood, perhaps a 200-year flood uh, protection, and yet there was this failure. What do we need to change about our thinking of risk assessment when it comes to flood protection? Uh, the 100-year a return period is an average return period, but there's a very substantial likelihood that during a 30-year mortgage that uh, if you, in fact, knew exactly what the likelihood was, it would be around uh, 25 27%. So wait a second. If I were told that uh, over the life of, say, owning a house that have a 27% chance of getting flooded out, uh, that doesn't seem like acceptable odds. It's not. For a place like New Orleans, it's totally unacceptable. The real message is if you live in areas that are below sea level, you're at risk. And you should exercise caution, uh, should be prepared for failures if they occur. Now, some have suggested that uh, the southern part of Louisiana is simply too difficult to protect, that... uh, someplace south of New Orleans, but north of the, of the far reaches of the state, permanent settlements just really should not be allowed. Based on what you see in this report, how practical is that suggestion? Well, the, the suggestion is impractical uh, if you put it in terms of prohibition. What you could do and should do, in my opinion, is... Uh, to avoid building facilities that give people a false sense of security. That uh, we're talking here, and a report addresses the fact that there are 350 miles of protective structures around New Orleans. I'm not sure the language that we use, but it's, uh, I'll say it's a virtual impossibility to ensure that all 350 miles of that system are going to be fully functional 100% of the time. In other words, uh, in certain areas, say there is no effective flood protection here, uh, be here at your own risk. That's right. 
Well, at this point, we know that we know that the cost of of the Katrina floods is someplace north of, I believe, eighty billion dollars. Right. I, I, so if we had spent $80 billion on flood protection, at least it would have provided uh, jobs and people wouldn't have died uh, and lost so much uh, ground and social and uh, emotional as well as uh, financial capital. Exactly. And for $80 billion bucks, do you think we could protect uh, New Orleans? For $80 billion bucks, you could uh, do a lot of other things that uh, might be a lot more beneficial than rebuilding levees or making them higher. You might be able to relocate people. You might be able to create uh, jobs in areas that are substantially at less risk. It requires uh, some additional analysis that has not yet uh, been publicly released. Professor David Moreau, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. alone in their desire to change the places where water and land come together. Writer Mark Seth Linder spent some time watching one of nature's engineers at work. The pond is still as polished stone, a duotone, tannic brown and gray and quiet, a quiet made of fine rain, slow churning of earthworm, purr of woodpecker on a dead tree across to the other shore. Hush of river rolling over the dam of cross sticks, which holds all this, this space, this wetted openness. Toward me now comes the engineer. Fast as a blur he comes, the V of his wake deep and sure, nose lifted just above the water. Thick fur, wet but warm, covers him, all but where he sees and breathes and hears, and the pad of his paw. He has no gills, no fins, no scales. When he dives, he holds his breath. Where water flows, he must stop it. Wherever it goes, he will find it. He is drawn by the sound and by the feel and perhaps even the scent. Now closer, as close to me as curiosity demands, till the flat of his tail waves goodbye and smooth as a silk scarf, he disappears underwater. Taming of the liquid force is the life work of the American beaver. It is the product of both forethought and design and an agile mind. First, a survey must be made. Noting where the bank is high and the river narrow, he will begin there. He needs no protractor, no T-square. Lacking transit and plumb bob, he proceeds by rack of eye alone, yet what he builds endures. With saplings and small lumber, in a weave that seems random but is not, with mud, with stones, layer by layer the dam is raised until all water will be conquered. In the finishing of a pond, a beaver takes many trees. Teeth are his adze and axe, and he works in the round, carefully. His lodge later branches is the keep where his family shelters, and their safety is his purpose. High in the leafy tops, predators may lurk in the form of eagles. Low down, cougar and coyote may hide behind the trunks. To hold the standing woods at a distance is not unwise, 
in a beaver's near-sighted eyes. Among the beaver's works, trout and minnow swim, and great blue herons fish for them. Wood ducks in Kandinsky colors, king fishers, querulous lovers, painted turtle drifting ark, dragonflies hunting near dark, late returning red-shouldered hawk. All this is here from what the beaver clears. Much depends upon the engineer. Mark Seth Linder writes a syndicated column called Salt Marsh Diary. To see some of his photographs, go to our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, the time has come to find a home for abandoned wristwatches. Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Just ahead, the strange things that ride the tide. But first, we head under the surf for this note on emerging science from Liz Gross. Laughing gas can make a dental patient happy as a clam. But scientists were not so happy to find clams belching out this powerful greenhouse gas. A recent study by Danish and German biologists analyzed digestion in a number of aquatic bottom feeders, including mollusks and insect larvae. The belly gas of these invertebrates contained levels of laughing gas, or nitrous oxide, that surprised the scientists. Nitrous oxide is the fourth largest contributor to global warming. Pound for pound, this gas traps 310 times as much heat as carbon dioxide. While burning fossil fuels is the most common source of nitrous oxide emissions, worms living in nitrogen-rich soil also release the gas. The recent study, though, was the first to measure the emissions from animals living in rivers, streams, and oceans. But, the researchers found, it's not the clams themselves that release the gas, it's their lunch. These animals feed on sediment full of nitrogen-hungry bacteria. And thanks to runoff from fields treated with chemical fertilizer, there are plenty of nitrates out there. Usually, the bacteria don't break down these nitrates, but in environments with no oxygen, like the belly of a clam or a snail, they do, releasing laughing gas in the process. With demand for nitrogen fertilizer increasing and global greenhouse gas emissions going up, nitrous oxide in mollusk burps is no laughing matter. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Liz Gross. Well, it's nearly time for many of us to plan a trip to the beach, maybe dig some of those clams as we catch some rays, or do a bit of beachcombing. Oceanographer Curtis Ebersmeyer has turned beachcombing into a lifetime scientific pursuit. From Nike shoes to rubber duckies to the proverbial message in a bottle, he studied the stuff that floats on the sea, and it's led him to a deeper understanding of how our oceans really work. Ebersmeyer's just written a book called Flotsam Metrics and the Floating World, and he joins us now from Seattle. Welcome to Living on Earth. It's a pleasure, Jeff. Thank you for having me. How did you get started in this? Why follow floating junk on the ocean? 
Well, I started by following uh, slabs of water and uh, back in the 60s, and um, following currents in the water is like chasing ghosts. You can't really see them except with electronical things and instruments. And then about 1990, my mom pointed out all these Nike sneakers washing on the ocean, and she said, isn't that what you do? I've never looked back. So tell me about the the sneakers that went overboard. How, how did that happen anyway? Well, the big story is that there's about 100 million of those big steel containers you see rumbling down the freeway. Uh, they're shipped overseas annually, about 100 million total. And in 1990, they lost, uh, one ship lost uh, something like 20 in a January storm in the middle of the Pacific. And five of those just happened to contain 80,000 Nike shoes. And uh, unfortunately, Nike didn't tie the shoelaces together, so off they went one at a time. And when they washed up here and uh, along the West Coast, uh, in uh, after a year or two, they were so wearable that... Um, Beachcombers were wanting to wear them, of course, but they uh, but only they had, had to find the one, other one, right? So they were having swap meets up and down the coast, exactly. To match a left with a right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a friend of mine, uh, Steve McLeod, had been making matches, and he was selling them for $30 a pair, a matched pair. And uh, he had records of 1600 and uh, turned out that each Nike shoe had an individual number which I could trace, trace like a message in a bottle. So I, I, learned out, I learned where they went, they fell overboard, and I learned, out, I learned where they washed up out of the ocean. So from there, you've, you've really kind of tapped into to beachcombers, uh, scavengers, as uh, your, your, your first wave of, of scientists, of, of data collectors. Exactly. There's uh, armies of beachcombers out there every day collecting things, and uh, they, until now, had not have been outside of science. So... Um, I guess it would be like archaeologists ignoring the people who find potsherds in the fields. You know, something I love about the uh, the Nike uh, sneaker story is so many of them washed up really close to the Nike headquarters. It was almost uh, like they were, they were salmon <laughs> returning to the ancestral spawning ground or something. I tried to point that out to Nike, but they uh, they said, uh, I said, don't you want to use it some sort of advertising value? I said, they said, uh, no, quote, um, Floating on the ocean is not a sports attribute we wish to endorse. <laughs> <laughs> right. Unquote. <laughs> a- another big spill of, uh, of cargo that you found especially intriguing, it, it was these, these rubber duckies. Yeah, that was uh, in the 1990s, about every year or two, there'd be a, con- a cargo container or, or so go overboard with some really interesting flotsam. 1990 was the year of the Nike sneakers. 1992 was the year of the bathtub toys. One cargo container that went overboard killed uh, 29,000 turtles, ducks, beavers, and frogs. And I <laughs> learned point A, and beachcombers were reporting all kinds of points B around Sitka. S- Sitka in Alaska. Correct. And why did they go there? They rode the southern edge of the uh, Aleut Gyre. It's that great circle of currents that runs from Sitka over to um, Kamchatka down to Japan and back to Sitka again. It's about a 8,000-mile circuit, and uh, takes about three years to go around. And every time the toys would go around that gyre, one orbit, you'd see more of them at Sitka. And it's uh, just almost like clockwork, uh, quite amazing. So I learned that that gyre was a three-year orbital period, and I started collecting flotsam for the uh, 10 other gyres on the planet. And they have this wonderful um, sequence in octaves, uh, 13 years, 6 years, three years, and one and a half years. So the ocean has this uh, grand musical scale, which 
I'm still uh, in awe of them. What importance have these gyres had uh, for for humans? They've actually influenced the course of history uh, in remarkable ways that hasn't uh, heretofore been appreciated. Columbus saw flotsam in the Azores, which he thought was remarkably fresh, and reported that to the queen, saying that land can't be too far to the west. So flotsam had had a significant bearing on uh, Columbus going to the Americas. The Vikings knew where things collected. Their god Thor told them, commanded them actually, to put treasured heirlooms on the water as they approached Iceland on the southeast shore. And wherever those heirlooms washed up, Thor commanded them to build their home. And um, it's actually very practical oceanography because uh, the heirlooms were mostly wood, and uh, wood will drift like other wood and, and find collection spots where there was plenty of driftwood for fire, for building homes, and so forth. So it was a very practical way of finding a great place for a new home. What does all this tell us about uh, larger environmental issues and, and the oceans? Well, probably the largest one has to do with what the flotsam is made of. And these days, most flotsam is is made of plastic. Charlie Moore has taken up this, this great crusade, and he's actually out there uh, sampling what's at the surface. In one of the great spots of the ocean where things collect, he found six times more plastic than plankton at the base of the food chain. So uh, it's pretty horrific. We're actually infecting the lifeblood of the planet. 10,000 years from now, we're going to have oceanographers, and they like to core down through the sediments at the bottom of the ocean. And they're going to come across a layer of plastic, and they're going to say, we found them, we found them, we finally found the plastic people that about killed <laughs> killed our planet. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The plastic people. Is that how we're going to be known, do you think? If we don't clean up our act, we'll be known as the plastic people, and we'll be a thin layer in the sedimentary rocks. Do you have a favorite piece of flotsam, something you found on the beach that you think is the all-time best? All-time best. Well, I do. I have a, I have favorite flotsam. I'm always collecting um, armies. There's an army on the ocean, little, uh, little toy soldiers. I collect incredible numbers of toy armies. So um, I always uh, think of the military on the ocean in terms of this giant toy armada. And uh, I like to collect uh, little toy wheels because they remind me of the great gyres that cover 40% of our planet. The book is called Flotsam Metrics and the Floating World. And we've been talking with Curtis Abbasmeyer. Thank you so much for being with us. Jeff, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, writes the poet T.S. Eliot, and an architectural firm in Boston couldn't agree more. They're designing a preserve for an artifact that's rapidly becoming an anachronism, the wristwatch. Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman has our story. Boston-based Moscow Lynn Architects specialize in creating buildings for environmental organizations. No question, business has been slow lately, but things perk up when it's time to open the mail. Today, partner Keith Mosco gives a visitor the honor. Why don't you open that? I mean, we don't know what's in it. Well, this is exciting. It is. It's the excitement each day. What shows up in the mail? 
Moscow Lynn architects receive a lot of packages these days. Stacks of brown boxes and beige envelopes. This comes a little bubble wrap here. Oh, yeah. Whoa. Whoa, a trove. I think you're a treasure here. trove. Look at this. This is... Oh, my gosh. Somebody sent you... Oh, my God. Watches. Lots and lots of wristwatches. Large and small, digital and analog, some with bands, some without. Each watch in this box has a small tag with a short, neatly written message, which Keith Mosco reads. Cool purchase quickly became fashion don't. I wow. begged my grandma for this. I wore it only once. Katie Abia. She had a lot of watches here. <laughs> Received at the age six, but I couldn't tell time. <laughs> I'm sure Katie uses her cell phone now. And so do many people. The times are changing, and how we tell time is also changing. If you think about it, most people under the age of 25 do not wear wristwatch. They use their cell phone. And so arguably, the wristwatch will go the same way as a pocket watch. So this is a moment in time, this, this changing, this, this time period when we're switching over. To preserve the past and mark the time when people wore wristwatches, Moscow Lynn architects have created what they call the Thousand Watch Project. The idea is that we're going to collect a thousand watches. Um, each watch has its own story. Then we're going to package it up, put it in a pine box, and donate it to the Smithsonian as a moment in time. And... What does the Smithsonian say about this? Have you approached them yet? We have sent an inquiry letter, as you do, and we're waiting to hear what they say. We're sending it to them in either way, anyway. Um, uh, then it's their problem. <laughs> yeah, then it's their issue. But we're going to pack it up because it really becomes a time capsule. The Thousand Watch Project began modestly with a notice on Craigslist. But clearly, it's an idea whose time has come, says architect Robert Lynn. Here's something we've identified as a kind of a cultural phenomenon that people have all these watches, you can't throw them away. Maybe it's because you wear them so close to your skin. Maybe it's because it's the one item of clothing or object that you wear every single day for a short period of time. You then switch it out for another one. So it sort of marks different periods of time in people's lives. So we, we didn't know exactly what we were going to do with them, but we just started collecting them you know, to see where it would lead. And it turns out that that really resonated with a lot of people. It wasn't something we sat down and said, oh, we're just going to do it. Again, architect Keith Mosco. I found that I had watches in my drawer that I just couldn't get rid of. I had gotten a watch for a graduation present from college 25 years ago. Everybody did. A couple years later, it went through the washing machine. I never told my mother until literally a couple of weeks ago. Um, but it moved with me half a dozen times, even though it was a busted watch. It was inscribed in the back. I couldn't toss it out. Um, I had purchased my first swatch when I was in architecture school. I was in Switzerland. Once again, it turned yellow. I wore it so long. It was a clear watch. I couldn't toss it out. And Rob and I were chatting one day, and we realized he had a bunch of watches, too, that he had never tossed out. So we go, okay, let's just bring him to work. We'll sort of get him out of the sock drawer, put him somewhere else. Soon, sock drawers around the world were being emptied of their keepsake timepieces and sent to the Thousand Watch Project. Associate architect Sarah West tags each, numbers it, and if the owner included a short message, she writes that on the tag, too. Then the watches are mounted with pushpins on tall wall boards. 470 was a, a recent donation, um, and the epitaph that was sent in with it said, For Sergeant Rodney Murray, time just ran out. No other explanation was sent in. 
Um, that's very interesting because that watch, it came in, it was a fellow who used to work here, and he ran as a seeing-eye runner for someone in the New York Marathon. He led somebody, and he clicked it when he was done with his time. It was just over four hours. Number 400. Uh, number 400 says, you'll always remind me of youth, uh, from Shane Hughes. And yes, this is one was sent in from Australia. This one. It used to be my favorite not so much anymore. These are, like, these are like little gravestones, you know? They are. They're, well, that's the idea. It's an epitaph, and um, it's a way of just putting a couple of words. You only put a couple of words on a gravestone, and it's just enough to tweak somebody's um, imagination or memory. So let me read a couple of these. Time ran out. Left in the second grade, lost and found for two years. Wisconsin. Bought at our friend Cindy's cancer fundraiser, R.I.P. Cindy. So some of these really are from people who are no longer alive. Very well could be. I mean, we've gotten watches from people who um, said they were their parents and or grandparents' watches, and they just could not get rid of them. But here was an honorable way to, uh, something honorable to do with it. The watches are also photographed, and Sarah West scans the picture onto the Thousand Watch Project website, where they can be seen for all time. I think it's a nice bit that... Once they're online, you can continue to visit it. You know, as if you were opening the drawer, you remember it, you know, maybe. Um, so you can still have a bit of that relationship, but I think um, people do entrust us to protect this memory and this keepsake and expect that we'll treat it well. We try to. Recently, the Thousand Watch Project hit a milestone, the halfway mark. Architect Keith Moscow. This is number 500. <laughs> and it says, treasure from the past. I love this watch. MBM, number 500. So this was a really important watch to receive. Actually, you, you guys are recycling time. You're answering that age-old <laughs> question, what do you do with your old watch? And what do you do with your time? Me? I sent two old watches into the Thousand Watch Project, number 511 and 512. For Living on Earth, I'm Bruce Gellerman. To check out the entire Thousand Watch Project collection and learn how you can donate your old watches, go to our website, LOE.org. On the next Living on Earth, big cities might have bright lights, but they don't have accessible, healthy food. I took two buses or a car service to get food back to Red Hook. Like, you couldn't even get a quart of milk or vegetables. Efforts to plant some new seeds in food deserts, next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Ike Srisconderaja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Gavoni. Our interns are Lindsay Breslau, Liz Gross, Phil DiMartino, and Christine Parrish. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. 
Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Skull Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs around the world. Uncommon heroes dedicated to the common good. Learn more at Skull.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PRI Public Radio International.